your goodness, your faithfulness. And we can attest to that, every, every single one of us. And I pray, God, as we look back on our lives, that we would recognize the, the times that you have intersected on our behalf, that you have taken charge, you've taken control, you've, you've worked on our behalf, and that we can honestly say that you are faithful and especially that you are good. And I pray today, Lord, as we celebrate your goodness, first of all, in the word, and then as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that we would be reminded of the goodness of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll be taking a little more time at the end of the service during the Lord's Supper as we celebrate communion together uh, for worship as well. There was a couple in their early 40s. They had been married, oh, about 15 years or so. And over the years, they had fallen into the routine of marriage. The husband, a, a creature of habit, left for work at the exact same time every morning. And he returned home at the exact same time every night. He would greet his wife the same way he left with a quick peck on the lips, absent a hug since his arms were full. Before dinner was the nightly news, and after dinner some television and then to bed. Their, their weekends were different somewhat, but very, very predictable. Then, one day... Directly across the street, a newlywed couple moved in. The man's wife began to notice some things about this newlywed couple. The romance, the, the surprises. The husband would sometimes just show up in the middle of the day and then hurriedly return to work. They would engage in, in water fights while they were washing their cars in the driveway, always, of course, in their bathing suits. And when he came home from work, this, this new husband would meet his glamorously dressed new bride at the door with flowers and boxes of candy and gifts, and they would stand there and make out for about five minutes. <laughs> well, the wife of the, of the predictable monotony watched all this going on for about one month. Finally, she could no longer take it. Frustrated, hurt, and angry with her husband's lack of attention, surprise, and romance, she confronted him at the door when he arrived home from work. She said, I can't stand it any longer. Have you seen what the man across the street does for his wife? Surprise dates. He meets her at the door with gifts and candy and flowers. Why don't you do any of that? Befuddled and surprised and feeling totally ambushed, the husband stammered, Honey, I couldn't do that. I don't even know that woman. <laughs> marriage, marriage. What is marriage about anyway? The longer we're married, the less we seem to know. In the beginning, of course, we're all experts. But just like people with no children are experts at child-rearing, and parents with preschoolers are experts on raising teenagers, so everybody seems to be an expert at marriage, especially if they've never been married. Well, I've been married. Judy and I have been married for about 39 years, and some of you know a lot more than me about marriage because you've been married longer. This much I know. Marriage is good. And 
Marriage is God's plan for humanity. It's God's plan for humanity. This is the third message in the book of Genesis. Week one, we looked at, in the beginning, God, the origin of the universe. Week two, imagine that, the origin of people. God imagined, God created, and it was good. Today, we're going to look at love actually, love actually, the origin of marriage, the origin of marriage. And I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis 2. It's on page 2 in the Bible in the rack in front of you, or you can follow on the screen in front of you. Genesis 2, starting with verse 18, as we look at love actually, the beginning of marriage. The Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man, its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's start with some background. Some background. How many of you love animals? Okay, most of you love animals. That's why you all go out and hit hunting and and shoot those innocent deer every year. That's okay. That's a different thing. That's a, they're delicious, yes. Anyway, some, some animals are more lovable than others. You've got a possum and then a rabbit. Okay, you, you, you kind of got the difference. When I was five years old, we visited the local, local zoo in Sakata, Japan, where we were living. I was about five years old at that point. And they had just acquired two lion cubs, two lion cubs. I don't know if they were born there or where they came from. Mama lion was nowhere to be found, and they actually allowed us to hold and to pet and cuddle those lion cubs. It was a remarkable thing. I don't think, I don't think anybody let anybody do that now, but we were actually able to pet those lion cubs. Inside most humans is an affection for animals. Some of you are dog lovers, some of you are cat lovers, some of you love rabbits or, or horses or pigs or calves or uh, a pet iguana, really affectionate. Some people like, uh, like to have a... Boa, boa constrictor, you know, some of those kinds of things. And, and people are really into animals, and, and people bring comfort animals on planes today. They allow them. The most bizarre I heard of was a pet pig, but that, that was a different story. Well, in this account, account in Genesis 2, we see a delightful picture of all these animals brought before Adam, and he, was, he had the fun of naming them. He got to name them all. Now, we don't think of this very often, but the act of naming demonstrates the use of language. Language from the very beginning. Of course, Adam spoke English. We all know that. Now, although 
language is a means of communication. Von Rod states, the naming is both an act of copying and an act of appropriate ordering by which man intellectually objectifies the creatures for himself. What does that mean? In other words, language brought conceptual order. Chaos to order. Adam needed to bring chaos into order. He was ordering his world, and he did that with language. Language orders our world as we name things. And one obvious fact that Adam saw that we read here was that each animal had a partner, each animal had a companion, a mate with whom to reproduce themselves, except Adam. Adam. Adam was very much alone. And I think God knew what he was doing. Maybe he wanted Adam to experience aloneness first, and then he would not take his wife for granted. Sound good? See, that can be a good thing. Now, I know many of you went through or are even now going through aloneness. And only when we experience aloneness can we really appreciate companionship. Now, up to this point, after each part of creation, it said that God saw that it was good. He, de he declared every part of his creation, it was good. Everything is good. But that then it says something is not good. Something is not good. It's kind of jarring in the middle of that. Let's look at the beginning of marriage. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good. He said it, everything is good at this point, but he says now it is not good for man to be alone, or not good is man's aloneness. And twice in this passage we find the words helper suitable for him, helper matching him, or helper comparable to him. Wenham writes to help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger than the help, simply that the latter strength is inadequate by itself. In other words, helper means matching him, opposite him. It seems to express the idea of complementation rather than identity. And as each of the animals passed before Adam, it was clear that while he and the animals had much in common, they had all, all of them had their mates, but he was very much alone. And he'd say, everyone has a helper except me. So on 221, it says, God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs he had taken out of the man and closed up the place of the flesh. No spare rib jokes, please. We're not going to go there. Verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. God had made dust into a man. Now he took a rib and made it into a woman. Go figure. Why did you? I, I'm not sure. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, it, it was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. And that's the spirit in which this is intended. Made woman out of the rib. So what happened when Adam woke up? What happened when he woke up? The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. But more literally, when you look at what was actually dis described in his language, as he said, we saw, he saw woman, he said, wow, 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 look at that. Now, you have to realize that Adam has been looking at lions and tigers and giraffes and elephants. Now he sees woman for the very first time, and he says, wow, okay, men, can we all say that, say, wow. Wow, yeah, wow. It's his partner, his partner. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Denotes relationship, kinship of the closest kind. Now, man is 
complete only in woman and woman only in man. That's how God made us. So God made us. It's natural and normal to want completeness with the opposite sex. That's how he made it. Now, so those of you who have had teenagers or have teenagers are always concerned about your sons because all they think about is girls. Or about their teenage daughters, all they think about is boys. Well, just so you know, God made them that way. Okay? That's how God made them. Now, just to note, singleness can be good. Singleness can be good. Paul, Paul was single. Paul calls it a gift. The gift of celibacy, as we call it. Jesus was single. Paul had the gift. Jesus had the gift. Singleness can be good, and it can give a person an undistracted life to serve God. So singleness is upheld as a, as a good thing also in the Bible, in the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever... Now, it's not like the, like the movie Failure to Launch, which a story representing single adults who are simply serving themselves and refusing to grow up. That's not what it is. This, this is something totally different. Singleness can be God's plan for certain people. And at certain times in life, God may call us to singleness. But for most, for most, God gave us the desire to be in relationship, a man with a woman and a woman with a man. This is good and it's healthy. It's the order of creation. It's the order of creation. Now, let's, that's the beginning of marriage. That's where it all started. Let's look at the basis for marriage, basis for marriage. In verses 24 and 25, we have this basis for marriage that is carried through to today. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In these two verses, we find four principles ordained by God for a successful marriage. Now, these four words that we're going to use to describe are not original with me. They go way back. A lot of people have used these particular words for these parts. And as we look at each principles, principle, these are reminders that that marriage is a picture also of the relationship that we have with God. With God. So let's look at the basis of marriage. The basis of marriage. Four principles. First one is severance. Severance. Letter A. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. That's, a, that's an incredible statement in a traditional society like Israel where honoring the parents was the highest of human obligations next to honoring God. Now, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to severance? What it does not mean, it doesn't mean you isolate yourself or break the friendship or never see your parents again. But it does mean that we were called to break the parent-child bond, breaking ties for financial or physical security. In marriage, a man's priorities change. He actually leaves, leaves home. And that's a vital prerequisite to a successful marriage. Now, we've all heard or we've experienced the mother-in-law tales or the horror stories. The, the mother-in-law or other family members, uh, members who interfere in the marriage and cause untold problems in the marriage. Many marriages never get off the ground because the husband or wife never really leave and the parents never really let go. Happens. Happens. Father keeps bailing them out financially, interfering in the relationship, whether it's disagreements, fights, or parenting. One of the best things that Judy and I did right after we got married, we moved 1,500 miles away from all family. 
from the nearest parent. Now, I, we were, I was going back to finish seminary in Minnesota, and, and we had got married. All our family was in Seattle, so we came out to Minnesota. It was awesome. Now, I know that can be impractical when you have kids, but we didn't have kids yet. So 1,500 miles away from everybody, we had to establish our own family, our own traditions, all those things. We, we did leave. We left. The new couple must leave in order to form their own family. Parents must let go and children must let go. And if one cannot let go and make your spouse number one, don't get married. Spouse has to be number one. It's very similar to our relationship with Jesus Christ that we're called to leave our past and break with our past so that we can hold tightly under a relationship with Jesus Christ. Same principle. So severance, leaving. Letter B, permanence, be united to his wife, means to cleave to or to glue to, inseparably glued to, together. Now in our world today, very few people believe in the permanence in marriage. Our culture promotes the idea of of living together first. We're going to try out this relationship. Give it a try. There's no permanence at all. And, of course, what we've discovered is over 70% of couples who live together prior to marriage eventually get divorced. 70%. Why is that? Because they try to experience intimacy without commitment. If they enter this relationship, there's always this back door. If it doesn't work out, we'll just just take off. And so that's the attitude that people have have come into marriage of saying if it doesn't work, well, we'll we'll try it out for a while and, and not, they either live together or married with that same attitude and, and wonder why they get divorced. And let me just say this to, to ladies. Ladies, if he really loves you, he will honor you, he will respect you, and wait until marriage for intimacy. You know, wait until marriage for intimacy. The desire for intimacy is, is, is very, very strong, especially for men. It's one of the top reasons men get married. And I say this to women, if he can have all the benefits without the commitment, then he will never get married to you. Make him wait. Make him wait. You want all this? Give me the ring. Make the commitment to marry me first. Then you can have it. Other than that, no. You don't get it. That's one of the greatest problems that we have today. Intimacy without commitment. Now, our culture says if it doesn't work out, we just get divorced. If we don't get along, it probably should have never happened. That's not what God's plan is, God's plan for marriage. And Jesus quoted this passage or quoted this part in, in Matthew 19. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They're no longer two, but one. There's something miraculous in the words of, I now pronounce you husband and wife because of the authority that's given. That, and let me just say this, those of you that like to mess around with, <laughs> I mean, I have this thing about uh, sending in for uh, online credentials and saying, okay, now I'm ordained, I'm going to do your wedding. Um, I have an issue with that. 
Not that the, if you did a wedding like that, you're not really married, but, but it's a holy ordinance. And when God puts it together, we are no longer two, we're now one, supernaturally. He puts those together. And then he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's a command, it's an imperative. Those of you that like, like grammar, Zaritze to is a present active imperative, third person singular of zorezo, separate. Let not a man separate. So in marriage, it's God. It's God who ties the knot. We're not supposed to separate it. Jesus quoted Genesis as a foundational creation of marriage. What did Jesus think about Genesis? He considered Genesis the words of God, the words of God. As we go through this, we find that Jesus quoted, he talked about Noah. In other parts, he, of course, talked about other parts of the Old Testament and talking about Jonah, out of the book of Jonah. But Jesus quotes from Genesis. And the vows say, until death separates, not disagreements, other persons or another person. And I've heard a lot of excuses. I, I, I never really loved her or whatever. Love is a commitment. Love is a decision, not emotions. Some have said, we don't relate anymore. We've grown apart. We don't have anything to talk about, nothing in common. We don't communicate. We fight all the time. Let me tell you something. You know why Jesus came? So we could crucify the flesh and its selfish desires and learn how to love. See, in a marriage, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christians want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be great witnesses, but not great husbands and great wives. It's far easier to be a, a good preacher a competent administrator or a good pastor than a, a good husband. It's easier to be good at our jobs than to be a good husband or good wife. Do you know that? Some of you are saying, yeah, I, I, I can admit to that. Many want God's power to get through challenges and obstacles in life, but not to hold their marriages together. And divorce is caused by one thing, selfishness of one or the other. Expecting the other to fill their needs. We enter marriage to give, not to get. It's not my desires for fulfillment. We weren't married to be fulfilled by taking. Marriage finds its fulfillment in giving, in giving. And those of you that have been married a long time know that to be true. It's in giving. And men, men, you are to lead. You are to lead. By nature, men are initiators, women are reflectors. Let me say that again. Men are initiators, women are reflectors. Women will reflect it at how they're elevated and, and valued. On a certain Pacific, South Pacific island, when men wanted to get, get, get married, they, they had to pay kind of, a, kind of a reverse dowry. If they were going to get married, they had to bring some kind of a currency gift to the father, the bride. That's the way it was. It was culture. And the currency they had on that island was cows. So they would bring cows. So when, uh, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he'd offer the father cows. And the going price for more, most brides was two or three cows. A, a really amazing woman might fetch four cows, but it was usually two or three cows. Well, one young woman, not thought to be all that special and she was rather plain, was really loved by a certain young man. In fact, he loved her so much, he offered her father seven cows for her hand in marriage. 
seven cows, an unheard of price. And the father jumped at the chance. Then the man and his wife, new bride, left the island for about a year. When they returned, as the story goes, the people were absolutely stunned at how beautiful this bride had become. She radiated beauty and grace. Why, they wondered. Because she was treated as a seven-cow wife. Valuable. It's a true story. Seven-cow woman. See, men initiate, women reflect. How are we treating our wife? That's a question. Now, there's always the question, is there a possible reason for a divorce? And I said, yeah, there's a, that's a whole other thing. Divorce and remarriage is a whole different thing. And some, some here have, have had their lives touched by that, and it's an unfortunate thing. And sometimes there's nothing you can do, whether it's a biblical or non-biblical. Many people have had their lives broken and torn apart by that. And many people here have made the best, and God has redeemed your life and Maybe he brought you with another spouse, whatever that is, and God is a blessing on that. But one of the things that we have to be, care, be careful of is that, that, we, that we stay, if, if, if we're in a certain state, stay in that state. And don't use another person's life or sin as an excuse for your action. Many people suffer through broken marriages. And no matter where you've been, God can redeem your life. And many here can testify to that. But in the original design, as we see it, God designed it to be man and woman for life. It says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, what makes things right and wrong? We've talked about this. God's Word. God says so. God created the universe. He gets to make the rules. God created people. He gets to make the rules. God created marriage he gets to make the rules. And, of course, we talked about in God's top ten why he makes these quote-unquote rules God's top ten. He knows how best his creation functions in human relationships and our relationship with God. And that's why he speaks forth. And we know the parameters, the rules. Now, let's talk about, just briefly, just a note on same-sex marriage. Marriage is an institution... God, God created one man, one woman. To redefine marriage as two women or two men or practices now, they're adding multiple partners and saying we're married to three women or two men or whatever. It's unbelievable, the combinations. Once you cross that line and, and leave that definition, one man, one woman, it can mean anything. And it is in many places today in America. Marriage is not based on tradition, referendums, laws, or even court decisions. God established marriage in Genesis from the very beginning. And we must have the courage to vigorously defend, unashamedly promoting marriage as God's institution, God's plan, God's holy ordinance from the very beginning, one man, one woman. That's the basis of marriage. And, and you know the stories. I mean, basically, Drew Brees, who's the quarterback for the, for the New Orleans Saints, released a video 
for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, encouraging young people to bring their Bible to school, uh, bring your Bible to school day. And he was castigated and called, called homophobic and all kinds of things because Fellowship of Christian Athletes has in their statement of faith, they believe in traditional marriage. Just have that in your statement, and you're called a hate group. FRC, Family Research Council, Focus on the Family, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the Wesleyan Church. Because we believe in a traditional marriage, people will point at you and say you're a hate group. No, we're not a hate group. That's a redefinition of marriage. That's where that has brought us to that. So don't give in. God established marriage at the very beginning. One man, one woman. In Matthew 19, 16, it says, They will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Becoming one. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What does fellowship have light with have with darkness? And that applies to business partnerships, co-ownerships, arrangements, relationships. They become one. That's unity. Letter C. Letter C. Unity. No longer one but two. When God supernaturally joins a man and a woman in marriage, they're no longer two but one. This, this passage in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What does fellowship, does, can light have with darkness? Can, can apply to business partnerships, co, co-ownership arrangements, relationships, but it mainly applies to marriage. One of the, the, the cr- main things is marriage. And as a Christian, we play with fire if we decide we're going to date or marry an unbeliever. It's outright disobedience for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. There are some, and I know I've seen this, some were deceived into thinking their partner was a Christian and they found out they were not, so they ended up in a marriage that you had one Christian and one non-Christian. Or, more common, two people were married and one came to Christ and one didn't, and so you've got, got a marriage with one that's a Christian, one that's not. Very common in our world today. And you, can, you know what it does for unity. We become one flesh with our spouse when we're married. Unity. So we have severance, permanence, and unity. And finally, letter D, intimacy. Intimacy. Verse 25 says, A man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. This denotes an innocence, a childlikeness, and openness. And Though this included physical intimacy, it also denoted transparency and honesty, no hidden areas, no embarrassment, complete absence of self-consciousness, unrestrained freedom, emotionally, physically, inwardly, and outwardly. And this kind of intimacy can only be experienced in a marriage where there is severance, permanence, and unity. How can anyone expose their innermost self, their fears, their dreams, their past, their future, if they thought that someday it was going to all be over? Or, or maybe it was going to be used against them. But with severance, permanence, and unity, there can be true intimacy, a willingness to expose oneself totally. 
The sacredness of marriage, sacredness of marriage under God is obviated by the scripture that pictures God's relationship with the nation of Israel and the church as a sacred relationship of complete commitment and love and purity. See, we are a picture. Marriage is a picture. One of the reasons it's so serious is that if we denigrate marriage, we denigrate the picture that God gave us of what the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage of, of people of God to the, ch the church, to Jesus Christ someday. It's a picture. So God created marriage, and it too is good. Severance, permanence, and unity. And then we can experience incredible beauty of intimacy. The true intimacy for which we were created, that is love, actually. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, by your grace, have created marriage. And Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. The fact that you, by your grace, have given us this gift and we live in that. And I just pray, God, that we would hold to that that we would never give up. And God, that we would be able to unashamedly stand for marriage because it was this way from the very beginning. You put it together. And when we forsake the biblical standards of marriage, our entire society and culture fall apart. And I pray, Lord, this morning for marriages. I pray for those that are considering marriage, those that are married, God, that you would build us, build us up. That, God, you would bring unity. That you would, you would bring that kind of openness and intimacy in our marriages. And, God, that you would, by your grace, strengthen this church and its marriages and families. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.